Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. We continue our dive into the Houston innovation ecosystem with an investor's point of view. Dougal Cameron is a co-founder and managing director of Golden Section, a venture capital firm, engineering organization, and early stage venture partner, serving business software companies from ideation through $5 million in revenue. Under Mr. Cameron's management, Golden Section has grown to a team of more than 80 professionals, invested in numerous technology ventures, and served more than 400 software companies with expertise and services since 2011. Mr. Cameron serves on several boards of portfolio software companies and several other operating businesses in his personal portfolio. Previously, Mr. Cameron served as the CEO of Prognosis Innovation Healthcare, a leading inpatient health record system, from its turnaround through the sale of the business in September of 2017. Prior to his roles at Golden Section and Prognosis, Mr. Cameron launched a division of a Houston-based oil and gas manufacturing company to recertify and repair blowout preventers and other pressure control products. Mr. Cameron has also worked in private equity and in that capacity worked with a range of industrials, including timber, steel, oil equipment manufacturing, and similar industries. Dougal, welcome to the Austin Next podcast. How's it going today? It's going great. Happy to be here. Let's take a walk through Golden Section. Now, you guys are kind of unique because you're a service company as well as an investor. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Golden Section and your operating model. Yeah, happy to. So Golden Section started as my family's family office and our investment activities into the software space. And so we invested in a B2B software company in the late, in the late 90s called Webvertising with a product called iHotelier. And that product and that company went through a, a pretty interesting cycle. The investment, I think, was in 1998, and the exit was in 2003. And so because of that exit, we developed a methodology around investing in B2B software companies that translates all the way till today. In the late 2010s, we ended up picking up a services company and built that out to help provide services uh, capabilities to B2B software companies. Normally, that typically doesn't get paired with investment very often. But what we noticed with uh, company after company that we would look at is they had pretty big failings on the software architecture that they were building. So the businesses that they were putting together because of either a lack of access to quality talent or because of a lack of know-how from the founder, there was some pretty big structural problems in, in the products that were being built. As a result, we decided to solve that by pulling together a team that we had used in the past through a partner of mine uh, named Isaac Shi to bring those capabilities to those software companies. And so what we do now is we have three legs to our stool. We have a studios program, which is early stage. And in the studios program, we mix our expertise. We call it our guide services alongside our capital and our service uh, company called Golden Section Product to bring that mix of offerings to the early stage founder. In addition, we have a product division, which brings uh, software consulting and software architecture services to early stage B2B software companies. And then the third leg of the stool is our venture arm, which operates like many other venture firms do. You were part of the turnaround at Prognosis? Yes. A 
EHR that was involved in inpatient work, if I understand it correctly? Yes. Uh huh. Did you see the same kind of things there? What was the problem when you came in? Yeah, great question. Prognosis is a big part of our origin story. So uh, Prognosis started after Webvertising was sold in 2003. And uh, the team that went to work for the acquirer, a company named TravelClick, uh, ended up leaving TravelClick over a one to two year period of time, which happens a lot. And that team got pulled back together and built a new company called Prognosis that initially would, was set out to serve uh, the patient complaint management software uh, needs of larger hospital systems. It was called HCAP survey management, basically patient satisfaction management. And after that business was essentially deemed to not have gotten the traction that they're looking for, the team pivoted and focused on the EHR components that were being mandated by the federal government, ultimately in what became the High Tech Act in uh, 2008, 2009. And so that business caught a very similar wave that I would tell you had caught in years prior. And through that business experience, the partners, in addition to a bunch of families here in town, decided to partner with OpenView Partners out of Boston. And uh, that venture firm put a bunch of capital into the business, ran it the right way from a coastal perspective. But as maybe the story will indicate, it's a little bit different the way that we think about how to build businesses in Houston than, than perhaps is present on the coasts. And, uh, and so that business went through a, a traditional series seed, series A, series B process, ultimately raised a little bit over $20 million and put it to work in increasing the, the headcount to about 180 people at, at max. And I ended up stepping in when we bought it back from OpenView Partners, technically Square One Bank, in a sort of pre-foreclosure process. And when I stepped in to run it the second time, that process was difficult. It was uh, the company had, had too many people on board, the expenses were too high for the revenue. The customer experience was lacking significantly. The vendors had been badly mismanaged, badly treated. Uh, so were the employees in, in many, many circumstances. And so it, it became what we call at Golden Section, a misery factory. And a, a misery factory is is the manifestation of R- all things going just wrong. From the, from the name, yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that happens a lot in software companies because software is a communication problem. You have you're communicating customer needs from your sales department or from your executive team, or in some cases both, to your R&D department who is attempting to put those together into a cogent, logical framework that then the sales department has to go and sell. And then the support department has to both implement and support. And when you end up getting disjointed because of that communication breakdown or communication problem, uh, it becomes a really rough place to work and a rough place to invest and a rough place to be a vendor to, et cetera, et cetera. And so that that business became that. I stepped in to run it the second time and fortunately had an incredible team around me. We were able to pull the pieces back together and, and pick the business up and get it growing again. And so about two and a half to three years later, we got the, the business on its right footing and then sold it to a, a portfolio platform called Azalea Health. And their sponsor was Keen Anderson, Keen Anderson Partners. And so that second time that we owned it taught our firm a lot of lessons about how do we want to prevent companies from getting to that same position? And that's what we exist to do today. So we, we call ourselves journey partners. We journey with B2B software founders to achieve a meaningful exit. And ultimately, lots of meaningful exits means a flourishing community, which we believe in Houston, we're, we're right at the cusp of starting to see. There's a lot of software in, in our lens, obviously, from Golden Section's perspective, is all B2B software. That's kind of the world that we know. But... 
the Houston ecosystem has a lot of software executives, software founders that have exited their businesses and, and have done really, really well, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And these are businesses that don't end up getting wrote up in TechCrunch or they don't end up on the front page of anything, but they're huge success stories. And and that's that's what the ecosystem needs ultimately to become a flourishing ecosystem is lots of those stories all over town. Let's talk about the pandemic and the ecosystem a little bit more. Everybody that was making predictions in 2018 got it right. A lot of them got it right, but they got it much slower than what actually happened. And what we saw was just a huge increase in capital, both capital raised, capital deployed. How did Houston's capital scene take advantage of what was happening in the pandemic to really flourish? Great question. Houston's uh, private capital scene from the family offices here in town, that's kind of, that's the world that Golden Section knows. All of our capital comes from from individuals and family offices. We don't have institutional capital in our, in our mix. And so that capital generally, it, it knows certain things really, really well here in town. Services, businesses, industrial sectors, oil and gas, obviously, uh, real estate, those are all well-trodden paths that the, that the families here in town know a lot about and are very, very capable in investing in, both direct and then also through through uh, sponsors. The venture scene is relatively new in Houston, but investing in software companies is not. And one of the things we're passionate about is educating family offices, mostly here in Houston, but also all over Texas, in how to think about investing in venture. Because unlike a office building or unlike a uh, developing a field in West Texas or unlike a services company, it's a lot harder to understand where all of the big dangers lie. And, uh, and so what we found with uh, in the past is that family offices would get excited about a particular technology or a particular company or a founder that's charismatic, and they would over allocate into that deal, feeling the perhaps the benefit that they had found a deal that wasn't already captured by a venture fund, which gives it maybe some allure. And then the result of that is that, you know, unfortunately it can lead to a comp- to a family over allocating into that opportunity. And then when that doesn't pan out because they don't have a portfolio, they end up writing off the asset class. And that happens time and time and time again. And so COVID from that perspective, I think was not good for the Houston ecosystem. There's a lot of companies right now that are having their, you know, chickens are coming home to roost, so to speak where once high-flying valuations and large third-party markups are being written down. And that's going to take a little bit of time to work its way through the ecosystem, but there's going to be a lot of people that jumped in from 2019 till 2022 that are going to see their paper profits evaporate. And those paper profits drove them to do additional allocations into venture or into software that are ultimately going to end up being, being a problem for them, which is not good. And, uh, and so I think there was a lot of excitement in 2019 and 2020 and into the COVID world that translated to an overallocation into venture in the Texas ecosystem in general, but, but definitely in Houston. Let's talk a little bit more about family offices because I've worked with family offices as an investment banker. And when you talk about training family offices to invest in venture, that is a very difficult concept. I've been to meetings of family offices where venture capital firms get up and basically badmouth the family offices saying, you can't do this. You have to come through us. Mm. 
and I sit next to somebody who's been doing angel investing for 30 years and somebody else who's Columbia Harvard grad five years with Accenture. And now she's going to be the second CIO of a family office out of Houston kind of thing. And it's like, no, no, no. These are smart people doing mm-hmm. this. But it's a skill set issue, isn't it? Yeah. Ultimately, it's a skill set issue. It's a it's an at-bats issue. So if if you've seen a lot of these deals, you get a, a sense for what a good deal looks like. And ultimately, there there are things that can be learned and can be communicated and taught. But there's a lot of expensive lessons. Like we, we have a list of 139 mistakes now, most of them around building B2B software companies. And so we tell our founders, and, and it's a little bit funny, but it's totally true, that we don't know all the right ways to build a company, but we know 137 ways not to. And that list is increasing every single quarter. And, uh, and so when a founder joins our portfolio, they join the journey of going to find the next mistake. And so we don't want to be a mistake sort of avoidance culture. We want to be, we want to embrace mistakes so we can learn from them. From them find them fast, them. find them small. That's right. Take care of them. And so that's a benefit that we have that, that a new entrant into the software investing space doesn't have. And that's, that's what we can provide to the families that invest with us. We, have, we give a lot of direct investment opportunities to the families that invest with us. Our goal is that they learn what we learned, that I want more of the Texas ecosystem to be a better investor in the software world as opposed to a worse investor in the software world, which means that valuations are not going to get crazy. It means we're going to take some of the ebb and flow out of this market, which is really, really damaging. And hopefully it means that families that start to tread into investing in software will continue to invest in software 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, as opposed to get burned by one big high-flying deal and then write off the entire category, which has happened a lot. When you're thinking about those 137 mistakes, how many of them, like rough water, right, are we thinking are B2B software mistakes that are generalizable to the industry? How many are the ecosystem we're playing in and hey this is a gap that we need to kind of fill up like really trying to look at the the state of the the ecosystem itself ah yeah interesting that's a good question it's it's hard for me to dissect it because they're they're the they're the mistakes that we encountered or that we committed (laughs) and uh and so as a result i don't know how much of them were necessarily due to the ecosystem Uh, i think a lot of them come from reading what's normative in a coastal strategy and trying to apply them where you don't have access to capital every 12 months. And so if your venture sponsor's objective is to get a big third-party mark, then our mistakes list might not be as relevant. Uh, But I would caution that there's another pool of problems that exist in the venture world that are are also right now in this environment, this capital environment, starting to show themselves. 66% of founders make nothing that are venture-backed, venture-backed founders. 66% of them make nothing when their company sells. That's a stat that that's pretty sobering, pretty shocking. And it's driven from the fact that as a, as a venture capitalist myself, my economic incentive is to bring my portfolio that particularly the ones that are performing, but technically all of them to other venture funds and try to convince them to give me a big third party mark. And two years ago, that was pretty easy this year. That's going to be really, really, really hard. And so the problem is if you have created as a founder, if you've created a dynamic where you can consume my capital really fast which gives me confidence that hopefully it translates to some revenue growth and I can bring you to my friends and get a big third party mark. And then I can tell my LPs, Hey, we're up three X and then we can go raise another fund that enhances my economics and my personal self-interest. 
And that's why we're, we're seeing that 66% number, because ultimately the person that loses is only diversified into one deal, which is either the family office that got a little too excited in one deal, or in all cases, the founder, they only have one deal, their deal. And so as a result, 66% of the time, founders end up not achieving the, the promised land that they set out to get to. And, and I think the capital environment is a big reason for that. And so, uh, so that's a problem. And so if you're going to operate differently, then there's a whole bunch of information of how to build a company that is premised upon the fact that you are, you are working for that venture capitalist to help them get their next fund raised. Uh, that doesn't translate if you're trying to not do that. So how do we think about then merging the two, right? Because one of the things that Houston's definitely going through, Austin's going through, Texas as a whole is the scale of capital here is growing immensely, right? It's not at the scale of the California or the the Massachusetts yet, but at the same time, what's interesting is when you start looking at the the data for 2022, you've seen a lot of clawback, right? We talked about of, of, of startup funding generally across the board. I don't have the data right in front of me, but it looks like I think Houston's the same and so is Dallas, is that we're coming down less than a lot of the other places. A lot of other places are kind of crashing down and like, okay, so you want to be able to build a company, not so that you, as you said, that you're with the built-in function of, I, I have access to capital every 12 months, right? At the same time, as we grow the capital environment in these ecosystems, the availability of capital every 12 months starts to become actually a possibility, right? It may not have been a possibility before just because it wasn't there and I wasn't able to see so how do you kind of merge that we have the, we get the capital scale, but you still don't want to make those same mistakes now that it's available, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Ultimately, it comes down to what are you trying to do? So B2B software is not a traditionally conceived of a zero to one innovation cycle. And so that obviously comes from a lot of different literature. But the question of whether or not a large Fortune 500 company is going to buy a tool to improve their cash collection cycle is not the same question as all of us in 2009 asking the question, are people going to ride scooters in downtowns all across the country? Those are two different questions, like two completely different risk profiles. The problem is that the entire uh, world of venture, it pools all of those different opportunities together into one fund structure. Now there's funds that focus on the you know scooter market. There's funds that focus on B2B software. We're in the latter, uh, but B2B software is not the same risk profile as scooters 10 years ago, it's not the same risk profile as blockchain today. And so because of that, 66% failure rate might be appropriate on the blockchain side. It's not appropriate in B2B software, where it's a mature industry. It's been around for a long time. If you go back in the ebbs and flows of whether the software is on the terminal or it's in the, uh, in the cloud or the mainframe back and forth, you know, going all the way back to the seventies, that cycle depends upon, you know, the availability of technology and computing power and where it should reside, whether in the mainframe or the terminal level, that dynamic has been at play for the last maybe 40, 50 years. The industry is very, very mature. And so because of that, uh, we think that when those worlds merge and, and let's say this ecosystem has enough capital to where you can depend upon those uh, capital, that availability at each of these windows, maybe every 12 months, I still think that B2B software should be funded differently than scooters or blockchain. And uh, I use those as just an example of the, I'll call it bleeding edge technology or bleeding edge adoption questions. 
as a result, I think when you think about merging those two, I think a coastal B2B software firm that's funded the way we think about funding deals is going to be more capital efficient than a, a, a coastal blockchain deal. But I think similarly for a, a you know, Texas market blockchain deal, it's probably, it probably needs the capital availability that the coasts have in order to see whether or not that industry is going to pick up its legs or not. And there's, you know, there's a lot of or nots. In the past you know, 10 years, there was, a, there was a big wave for AI uh, that's catching its wave. There was a big wave for AR and VR, and that, to some degree, maybe hasn't. And so there's there's a lot of future states then that venture invests into, some of which pan out, some of which don't, and that's part of the game. B2B software is different as a category. So therefore, how do I merge those two? I think about whether whether the capital that's available for a early stage software company is the right capital. And, and we think we are for B2B software. I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, when you talked about the source of venture funds in Houston, it's primarily coming from family offices. Yes, That is not true on the coast. It certainly isn't true in these last couple of years in Austin. We've seen a great big increase in the venture firms in the Austin area. Talk to me about how the aggregation of family office money into this venture pool here in Houston has impacted the Houston ecosystem in general. Do you see different startups? Do you see more, more or less? What is it? What do you see? That's a, that's a good question. I, I still see the same theme over the last 20 years, which is that there's a bias towards a direct investment because, and I, I think there's probably a couple of reasons for it. One of them being, a venture fund like a private equity fund has fees that look really, really high. So 2% management fee, for example. If you compare that, it, and not all family offices are thinking are comparing their alternative strategy to a Vanguard fund, obviously, but a Vanguard fund is like a couple of basis points. And so when you compare those two fee structures, it looks like venture is way over feeing its LPs. But then you look at the dynamics of how alternative managers make money, and typically the fee gets refunded in order to get to the carry. And so there's a lot of dynamics there that I think the Texas ecosystem of family offices need to learn. And, and that's a hard thing to get into because typically the money managers that they are relying upon and that are their advisors are, are receiving fees on the total amount of assets that that money manager is managing. And so because of that disincentive to push into alternatives, there's a couple of barriers, I think, to get into alternatives in general. And so as a result, the thing that causes the family to decide to go do a deal is typically something that's really exciting about a particular company. And so maybe it's they know the founder or they met the founder or they're at an event and it seems like that's the hot deal or whatever. And that's what causes them to trump their money manager or their advisor and go direct into a deal. And so over the last 20 years, we've seen several waves where venture gets hot in the Houston market. And we were in one of those waves the last two to three years. It's starting to dial down because of the third-party marks that are going to be dropping here very soon that I mentioned earlier. And I think the same dynamic that has been at play is still at play where families have a tendency to want to do deals direct. And I'll admit that our family did that. So the origin story of what we just of what I just explained about where Golden Section comes from is us writing a check direct into a company, webvertising with a product I hotel here. And, and we were just an example of a family that the dice came up the right way and it could have easily not. And then we would have written off the entire asset category perhaps. And so as a result of, of us developing this capability, 
the lessons that we've learned, we want to translate out into other families. And so all of our LPs are uh, mostly Houston families, but we have other families from across the country that are invested invested as well. But the lion's share are Houston families and, and Texas family offices. And those investors see us as a trusted resource to understand how to invest in venture. And we make introductions to other funds all the time. I'm an LP in 10 other venture funds myself. And then our LPs get introduced to those venture funds as well, because the entire asset category, no one should look to golden section for their only allocation to venture. That's that's not prudent. Uh, but it's also not good for the ecosystem. There needs to be a lot of managers out there making independent decisions and creating a market for these assets. And so what I'm seeing in terms of the Houston dynamic, particularly in a post-COVID world, is the same story that has been at play for the last, well, for as long as I've been a participant in the ecosystem of families and to some degree institutions. Uh, corporate VC operates somewhat similarly, writing large checks into deals that seem like the hot deal in the ecosystem. And that may or may not pan out. And more times than not, we find that it doesn't. You talk about the, the family offices are going direct and you can convince them to come to the LP. How do we think about the investor class here from a stage perspective? Are the family offices stepping in at the angel and seed? Are they large enough they're doing A's? You generally can't, from my perspective, do B's, C's, and D's without institutional funds. It's just you don't have enough uh, capital available. So where are we seeing kind of the maturity of the various stages of investments here in Houston? Yeah, good, good question. I, I see most of the time it's going to be series A or earlier in terms of the families that are investing in town. And then it does end up for the deals that get these large third party marks. It typically goes institutional after that. And then that's where the trouble really occurs because those institutions are going to have liquidating preferences on their investor class. And they're also going to block out typically other investors from participating after they get in. And those institutions uh, or those larger funds tend to be outside of Houston? They tend to, yeah. Not always, uh, but they tend to. Yeah, they tend to be outside of Houston. And and there's, a, I think, a huge uh, motivation for the company that's here in town to move out of Houston. And and whether that's just kind of default mental process or, or whatever it is, but that, that story has happened a lot. And the companies that get really, really big in town tend to be bootstrapped or they tend to be funded in a different way. And so once they get a big institutional check from a coastal firm or from a firm, you know, in, 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 in a non-Houston market, there's an impulse for them to move out, even though that's probably not a directive from the firm, from the institutional investor. I don't think it's that kind of directive anymore. I mean, we've seen that become much less of an issue, especially during the pandemic. But uh, it's interesting that that seems to still be happening in Houston and one of the things, and you mentioned this before, software entrepreneurs who have been successful, who've seen their liquidity events happening, who have large bank roles now, the self-sustaining capability of an ecosystem is driven in large part by those folks taking and recycling their capital back into the market as an LP, as an angel investor, as a direct investor, whatever. Are you seeing that happening a lot? Yes, very much so. And I, I think there's there's a really good part to that. Then there's the ugly downside to that. The, the good part to the recycling is that as the flywheel of capital getting returned to investors starts to speed up, the availability of capital is going to, going to increase. And that's definitely happening in Houston. There's two things I think that have pushed Houston investors in that direction. The first is a 
an inherent uh, comfort with alternative investments that the Houston ecosystem has always had because of the oil and gas opportunities to invest that are almost always non-institutional. They're, they're kind of one-off deals. In addition to the, to the real estate proclivity that the Houston family offices have to invest in office buildings or multifamily or whatever it might be. And so there's, there's a lean towards alts that has characterized the Houston family office community that makes venture not quite as scary as perhaps other markets, but there's also a, uh, and, and I guess there's also a, a more, you know, universal push for people to think about alternatives as opposed to the, you know, public market or public equities or debt and equity strategies that have characterized many wealth planning for families in the past you know, hundred or so years. And, um, and so I think that's made capital availability a little bit easier. And as that flywheel occurs, it's going to start causing them to want to do more direct deals, hopefully create and back more emerging managers. And, um, and that's the good part of the ecosystems flywheel, the ugly downside, which is kind of correlated to what I was mentioning before is these third party marks being repriced down is going to have the effect of the families who may have been allocating out of paper gains, which is very hard not to do, all of a sudden rethinking that allocation. And when you rethink that allocation, it's going to have a compound effect on the availability of capital. And, and I, I, you know, looking at some of the deals that I know pretty well, there, there's going to be a lot of families that are thinking that way in, in this environment as those third-party marks get repriced down. So I want to take us up a level. We're an Austin-based podcast. We're coming here to Houston to learn more, see where the connection points are. Where do you see the interaction points between Austin and Houston? Is it is capital and startups flowing back and forth? Is there not a lot of interaction? What is what are your thoughts? Uh, I think there's a lot of flowback. Uh, several, a lot of our portfolio companies are in Austin. I can think of three right now. There might be more than that, in fact. Uh, and so the, we look to Austin a lot for founders. There's a pretty big density of of companies there. Obviously, there's a lot of comfort with uh, with early stage software that tends to get over that initial hump that we're looking for of proven product market fit, which we determine with just a little bit of revenue, a couple thousand bucks a month. So we're not looking for millions of dollars of revenue to prove that out. And so because of that, the Austin ecosystem, I think, is really good at that early seed stage funding uh, concept. I think what Houston is good at, and at least what, what you know, the lens that we get to see of Houston is good at, is taking a company that, that has a proven fit and building it in a sustainable, what we call a balanced way where it's a capital efficient approach to, to get to revenue scale. So we look to sell our companies when they get between five and 15 million in revenue. So they don't have to get to billions in revenue to have a, a meaningful exit. Meaningful exit means different things to different people. And um, so part of our job is to partner with the founder and understand what they mean by meaningful and to also make sure that they don't become one of those statistics, the 66%. And so what are the connection points? I think companies flow back and forth pretty freely. I think founders flow back and forth in search of capital pretty freely. I think the the uh, thing that I don't see quite as much is Houston families investing in emerging managers in Austin and vice versa. Although we do have LPs in Austin and I have fund holdings in Austin. So it's not strictly speaking, not the case. But for whatever reason, I think people lean particularly for something that's unusual like venture for the Houston family office community. I think they lean towards people that they know rather than people that they meet through a friend or a colleague or something like that. And uh, so that might be a a part of that. But I think there's a lot of, you know, maybe it's an obvious statement, but there's a lot of flow back and forth between Austin and Houston. Are you seeing anybody 
leverage. I've, I've only seen this at a couple of companies, but I'm, I'm thinking it might be a better thing. We talk about the Texas Triangle as a as a super region and really leaning into the talents of all regions where it's like, okay, I've got XYZ talent concentration in, in Austin. So I'm going to put a, a regional office there. I've got a different set of talents that are great in Houston. We'll put an office there. Are you starting to see these, especially with the hybrid kind of spreading across where it's close enough, right? We, you know, we're, we came this morning, we're going to be going back to Austin tonight. So you can do it in a day, but you know, but really being able to leverage the talent pools in each. Yeah. I, I th- there's definitely a lot of talent transportability between the regions. And I, I don't see companies being that quite that strategic. I think it'd be a great idea. I think there's a lot of talent in Houston that that is fit for a couple of very specific purposes in the B2B software world. Same with Austin, same with San Antonio, and same with Dallas. And you could probably generalize and come up with buckets of talent that are that are available in those places that might be pretty interesting. But the way that I think about, in fact, in a lot of our companies, when they're looking for talent, C-level executives, or even just talent up and down the organizational chart, they're, they're going to be looking at the entire Texas region because uh, of maybe a it might be driven by perhaps a perceived lack of talent, although I think that gets overplayed. But I think it's mostly driven by the, the cooperation in the region that y'all mentioned earlier. There's just a lot of, uh, there's not you know, animosity between the cities. There's a lot of Texas mindset that drives the way that these cities operate and operate together. And so because of that, someone uh, applying to a job from Dallas for a Houston firm is, is a pretty normal thing and vice versa. And so I think that the availability of talent is actually pretty strong in each of these cities because you don't necessarily need someone that has 10 years of selling enterprise software to be a great enterprise software salesperson. Uh, for instance, someone selling you know oil field contracts, service contracts to the uh, well to companies here in Houston, that translates very efficiently over into selling software. So there's a lot of transportability of the types of talent pools that exist in Houston, and so I think it gets overplayed that the talents thin or the talents not quite deep enough. And I think the reason people look to the different cities in Texas is just that people are thinking about hiring in Texas rather than thinking about hiring just in Houston or just in Austin or just in Dallas. It's interesting, though, you talk about how somebody with an oil field contract selling experience is often able to transfer those experiences to B2B software sales. Yes. And having been a hiring manager out in that other, that other area, I could not imagine looking at a resume with that background for a software sales kind of thing. I just couldn't imagine it. So what's developed here is an openness and an understanding that's very different and that serves Texas well. And that's a great thing. Just wanted to get that in there. Yeah. (laughs) The talent is an interesting question. If we start having, one of the things that I really like about I think this is true of Austin. I'm seeing it in Houston. I'm sure I see it in Dallas and San Antonio. Is the the sector diversity? It, you don't. It's not just B two B enterprise, right? There's obviously in Houston. Uh, and my background's all in you know in, in the bio sector. And obviously, there's a huge you know Texas Medical Center and everything. And you see those some of the best creative collisions is that intersection between those two. And while you have, I think that's that sense of openness. But how do you approach like at least your portfolio companies to be like? Think about outside the box. Think about these things. I mean, I've 
you know, as a podcaster listening to other podcasts, it's always interesting when you think about workforce and how we've set up the systems to screen out candidates rather than looking for skill sets and screening in. So all of our base systems are are blocking different, like you're not going to get that that oil field uh, candidate for going to software sales. It's not going to get past a the ATS system, right? It's just not going to happen. So how do you advise your portfolio companies or others to think differently from the talent perspective to cross section, cross sector? We, uh, well, primarily through our mistakes list <laughs> and, then, and then the playbooks that we derive off of the mistakes, because that, that is a mistake, a mistake that, that oftentimes founders make. And, and it pops up when you go to the Google machine and ask, who should I go hire? And you're picking up stuff from ecosystems that might have deeper talent pools. But like I mentioned before, deeper in a specific vertical or with a specific type of background, as opposed to someone who can get the job done. And so I think when you think through what's the objective of hiring somebody to lead my enterprise sales team, I need someone who can, who, who's capable to achieve the outcome. And as a founder, I'm trying to offload that set of responsibilities onto someone else so that they can execute and I can start focusing on other areas of the business. And so, uh, so how do, how do we advise them? We advise them to not think sector specific or vertical specific. And there's two reasons for that. One, it creates a bigger pool of candidates that they're looking for. And they're looking for culture fit in addition to intelligence and integrity and drive. They're looking for uh, someone that can ultimately get the job done to give the founder leverage. But the uh, thing that I think comes up a lot with founders is thinking about this person that I'm looking at, that they ask a question that I don't think is strictly relevant. They ask, does this person know my customers really, really well? So are they a part of my vertical? And so, for instance, for a company doing, you know, improving the AP process for GE, for like, you know, large businesses, Someone that that has implemented software into uh, that space may be a good candidate to run an implementation team, but someone who's done project management for a large multifamily operation also could be a good fit. And so the question is not, does this person know the customer lingo? Because the founder is a person that should know that. The founder should understand the nuance of how the customer operates and be able to communicate that, that vocabulary into their organization. And the people that they hire need to have the capabilities to execute. And so we, we spend a lot of time on that because that's a, that's a key area for mistakes and ultimately a lot of turnover and a ton of cost when a founder thinks that the only person that they can hire hits the intersection of the three circles on the Venn diagram of knows my industry, has the capabilities, and is in my town. And so when you look for that, you're looking for a very, very, very small set of people. And, and then the culture question becomes really relevant because are you able to find that one of the three people that could fit that box and do all three of them? Could they be a culture fit? Probably not. And so it, it's, it's a challenge. So you, and so from our perspective, you want to hire for culture first, in addition to obviously screening through that they have the intelligence to operate in that role. And, and then the question is, can they get the job done? Can they give the founder leverage? So Getting back to kind of the connectivity between the the different ecosystems, from your perspective, sitting in Houston, what would be your biggest ask of the Austin innovation ecosystem? Biggest ask of the Austin innovation ecosystem, I think. I think there's a lot more that can be done in the broader Texas ecosystem, and therefore the cooperation between Houston and Austin in communicating the types of. Uh, uh, the types of deals that exist in those cities, as opposed to the one or two breakout successes or apparent breakout successes that are that are getting all of the attention, and so that that drives some families to make 
and over-allocation to a business and not, not be able to understand the risk that they're taking because it looks like that company having raised $100 million or $200 million is a pretty safe bet. But with the complexity of a, of a you know, series of liquidating preferences, with the complexity of a valuation that is not supportable in a third-party sale, uh, that becomes a big, a big challenge. And so my, my request of both Austin and Houston Ecosystems is that they spend more time elevating all of the players or thinking through what elevating one or two success stories in those towns does to the ecosystem. Because I think what it does is it causes founders to want to be that and therefore to want to raise more money and therefore to create a business that can raise more money. And those things don't necessarily translate to efficient businesses. In fact, oftentimes they're at odds with that. Dougal Cameron, Managing Director of Golden Section. We always try to ask one last question. In your case, what's next for Houston? I think families learning to invest in venture is next for Houston. We're seeing that happen a lot and we're, we're really excited about it. So I think emerging managers, more emerging managers, training families on how to make effective direct investments is what's next for Houston. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us on the Austin Next Podcast. Thanks. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.